Hello, listener. I'm Carl Anker, and welcome to Talker Devils, the Manchester United podcast from The Athletic. As ever, I bring you two of the greatest Manchester United people since the days of Louis Zaha and Wayne Rooney. Yeah, that's an underrated partnership, that one. Uh, <laughs> with me today, as usual, is the Athletics Manchester United writer, Laurie. Well, Laurie, how are you doing? I'm very good, Carl. I actually interviewed Louis Zaha this season. He was very pleasant. He's a really nice person. Really nice man. Mm. Fun Twitter account. Um, and with us, as per usual, and with a brand new haircut, it's uh, Unite We Stand editor and contributing writer to the Athletic, Mr. Andy Mitten. Andy, how was the haircut? All right, normal. The hairdresser <laughs> complimented my wife and said that he's seen uh, professionals do worse than my wife, and I told my wife, so she now thinks she's like the Queen of Europe. And anyway, it's just nice to have your hair cut, you know, after walking around looking like a whatever for a month. But I, I can also say that Sahar, like Laurie, I've, I've interviewed Sahar, spent time with him this season, very nice guy. He thinks about football in a slightly different way to other mm. footballers, and when he wrote his autobiography, it was a long letter to his brother which was didn't always work if I'm honest but hmm. it was I just like the way that he he sees things through a different perspective he is one of Wayne Rooney's best strike partners if I do say so myself listener you can enjoy The Athletic for free for 90 days by going to theathletic.com slash manunitedpod and uh, on there you'll find wonderful articles from both gentlemen as well as some uh, fine scribblings from the wider Athletic team right then gentlemen first order of business season ticket Information has just been released regarding Manchester United. Laurie, I think the news went out well, two or three hours ago before we start recording this. Could you please give us an update? Yes, obviously this is out on Wednesday, but on Tuesday morning, um, United sent a letter to all season ticket holders, basically saying what they kind of had planned to do, that they first announced this in March, you know, when it all um, kicked off. And they said that um, the four remaining games that were due to be played in the Premier League at Old Trafford, um, fans can get refunds for that. Um, no problem. And, and also the Europa League game against Lask. They're sort of waiting to see, I think, on what happens with the Europa League because, um, you know, UEFA have a slightly different way of doing things than the Premier League. So, um, yeah, but that'll probably be refunded as well. Obviously, we, we don't expect that to be played in front of crowds. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's, a, it's the right move to do, I think, from United's perspective. It's clearly something that I imagine most clubs will follow, but it's good for them that have been quite early with the communication and, and they've been um, quite upfront about it. So, Bundesliga are currently playing and the Premier League just earlier this week have announced that they will be returning to training. Um, Laurie, can you, you tell me, will Manchester United be going back to training this week? I actually thought it was going to be back today, uh, which is Tuesday, but it's, it's actually going to be tomorrow, um, so uh, i.e. today, Wednesday. Um, it, it's going to be a small group, so five you know, maximum and um, socially distant, obviously. Uh, I'm told that the kind of stuff they'll be doing is very much you know on a rudimentary level, passing perhaps between them running drills separately um, that you can do um, as, as long as you know you're not not kind of coming into contact at all it's very much um, a, a distance and clearly there's going to be loads of sanitizer there's going to be I mean this I've been spoken speaking to people about the details that they've had to go through to get this stuff sort of signed off for, for the phase one of return it's absolutely incredible some of the details in terms of how much alcohol is in the disinfectant what percentage when you wash the goalkeeper's gloves are you allowed showers or not at training and stuff like that so that's all been signed off and agreed by the 20 Premier League clubs I suppose the next step is when you start to build it up and start to bring back contact into it how you do that I wonder if that's going to be a more difficult aspect for Premier League clubs to agree on Once again with football currently suspended we're doing the rebooted series where the Athletic looks back at the 98-99 season where Manchester United of course declared themselves as the greatest team on God's green 
Um, each episode, we've been going back to where Manchester United were 21 years ago. And 21 years ago this week, they faced Spurs at Old Trafford. Manchester United on the verge of true sporting greatness. But remember, a win will make United champions. Andy, I know you were there. I know you were there for this game. What was that day like? It was fantastic because the league had gone to the final game of the season. Arsenal had been brilliant and I don't feel any sympathy for them, but they were a proper title challenge. What do I remember most about that day? It would be Andy Cole's goal and Cole would probably say that's the best goal he's ever scored. And Tottenham Tottenham were in a weird position because they didn't want to help Arsenal win the league because they're the main rivals. Yeah, Tottenham went one up and then Beckham equalised just before half-time. And the Skulls gets it. Sherwood says he was fouled. The referee doesn't agree. Giggs. Skulls. Beckham. Sherwood's furious, he's after the referee. He wants to know why a free kick wasn't given. And so one all at half time. There was a lot of tension there. And the players went into the, the dressing room and Fergie brought Cole on and he just said to him, Do your stuff for me. And and how he did that stuff, it was an incredible goal, the technique of it uh, to put Manchester United. Well, it was it was a goal which won the title. Oh, it's uh, Andy Cole. Can he get it over Walker? Cole. Within three minutes have been brought on by Alec Ferguson. It's the goal that could be in the championship for Manchester United. And without that title, there would be no treble. But he, it was Gary Neville put the ball over. I think it was. Yeah, yeah. Put the crossover. And uh, just after half-time, and that really relaxed uh, the fans. Can you remember it, Laurie? Yeah, I was there as well. Um, I mean, the family stand for this one. Uh, so we had great little seats above the tunnel, uh, me and my dad, my mum, my sister. Um, although my sister, we've been going to watch them for a long, long time, uh, a good number of years, and, and five or six, and, and she just turned around to, to me, me and my dad one day and said, is Ryan Giggs left-footed? So like, she's obviously been paying uh, good attention, and she'll thank me very much for bringing this story up on a podcast. But we all, it, was, it was lovely to watch as a family, and I suppose in hindsight, it kind of got too good too early for me in my life, because you, how do you top winning the title at home at Old Trafford? Um, I was at uh, Wales qualifying for um, the Euros, you know, last season um, or last year rather and that was in front of the home fans in Cardiff and, and I realised because when they did it four years ago it was in Bosnia and they lost and it was a sort of weird atmosphere they still qualified doing it at home in front of your own fans as United did it, on, in 99 is, is it has to be the best feeling because and, and also the jeopardy of it all you didn't know you know obviously when Les Ferdinand put Spurs ahead um, with that kind of weird lob just a crazy goal wasn't it where Schmeichel careers into the back of the net and takes it takes the net off its um, attachments to the posts um, you, you actually thought oh, oh blimey could this go wrong you know this whole season feels like it's been building towards something but football's not like that but yeah as you say Beckham's goal just before half time was absolutely brilliant um, Skulls I, I was watching back this morning to, to make sure my mind was right on, on, on the facts of the, of the game because I remember the Beckham sort of from the angle that we were at whipping it top corner but it was actually sort of skulls on Tim Sherwood that got the ball back high up the pitch 
and gigs and back to skulls and he sort of laid it into to Beckham for sort of nice um, opportunity to shoot but still it was a hell of a strike and um, and United what, from watching it back I just remember the intensity that the United played with you know throughout that whole time but also in particular this match they sort of went for it sensed it York hit the post when Ian Walker tried to clear against him and um, they had other chances as well apart from that but you're right it did feel when Ferdinand scored it was it was tense, wasn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. And it, it, that was the 60th United game of the season, so it was very hard for the players to be fresh. And I remember reading that Teddy Sheringham had been really annoyed when he was taken off at half-time. Of course, he'd have his moment in the sun a few days later in in Barcelona. But I was in K-Stand, and the atmosphere was bouncing. And there was a concourse underneath K-Stand. And in the 90s, it used to get rocking at half-time. Everyone was singing. It was a wonderful place to to be and to be a football fan and remember obviously everyone's buzzing because you've won the league but all the talk was how you get into Barca mate that's all it was because the next day we, we were going on the Sunday everyone wanted to know how everybody was getting to to Barcelona gentlemen I want to talk about David Ginola a little bit he hobbled off early in this game but the notable thing for Ginola in his season was he ended up being PFA and football writer player of the year Fergie wasn't pleased with that one was he Andy? no it was weird because the votes were were cast in January, if I'm not mistaken, and it was the football season doesn't finish in January or early February. It was a ridiculously early time to cast the vote, and that season, you know, if Manchester United's season had had ended at the start of February, it just, just bore nothing like the how the season ended uh, shaping up. Ginola was a was a, a good player, but if you're doing well in a a Tottenham team, who what where were Tottenham? Tottenham finished eleventh that season. It's not quite doing the same as coming through FA Cup semi-final replays for Manchester United and winning the league. And I'd say there's a case for several players. don't know what you think, Laurie, but there's several United players who should have won that. Yeah, well, I was, I was just thinking back. I, I, I know we've done an article on this on The Athletic, but I think the vote was split with United. I certainly remember at the time it was... You know the, the, this idea that who who would you pick? I mean, I don't know what you'd say, Carl. Now flinking back, or you, Andy? Now, but it, it seemed like there was too many good players for United to, to pick. Yeah. And I think between yeah. the fans and between the football writers and, and and the players, I think probably York, Roy Keane, and I guess Beckham after you know coming back from the World Cup that he'd had and, and then having the season that he did. I think they were probably the three standouts. Maybe Yapstam as well, Schmeichel. You know, although it probably wasn't his best season. But there's so many you know players mm. that you could pick from that I think Ginola sort of crept through the middle didn't he mm. Mm. it is a fascinating one Ferguson still, still was annoyed in a recent I say recent it was 13 years ago um, following uh, Manchester United winning the league in 2007 where he went English journalists sometimes they get things right Blind. well you, you, you idiots um, was obviously what he said to journalists uh, over one <laughs> Sebastian Veron so you know he's got form for that kind of thing <laughs> Um, this victory over Spurs is also notable because it was Per Schmeichel's last game at Old Trafford. Andy, I'm going to throw this one to you first. There are listeners who perhaps don't remember watching Schmeichel play in the flesh. Um, how good was he as a goalkeeper? He was one of the best two or three goalkeepers in the world. He was utterly driven. He was an absolute bargain when he signed. He signed when the team were on a pre-season tour of Norway in 1991 and this this shows how times change right there's probably 20 united fans in a town called Molda, which no one had ever heard of and then everyone would hear of it years later because this kid called ollie gunnar solskjaer went to play there and fergie came up to us the fans the 20 traveling fans and said nice one for coming lads 
um, why don't you go out with the players tonight? Why don't you have a night out with them? And uh, this is my new goalkeeper. We've just signed him from Denmark. This is Peter. Hi, mate. How are you doing? <laughs> it was just bizarre, you know, that you meet him, Peter Schmeichel. And he looked sort of really young. He had a pair of jogging bottoms on. And he became an incredible uh, goalkeeper. Uh, extremely strong will. Extremely strong personality. Which could, it really could agitate his teammates. And maybe he needs a couple of balls in the same pen to get that winning spark. But... Schmeichel wasn't always flavour of the month. And even now, there are some United fans who, who won't forgive him doing a cartwheel in celebration when he played for Manchester City. Uh, but for Manchester United, he was an incredible goalkeeper. Laurie, you, you must have seen that. I mean, you've seen him, you've seen Van der Sar, you've seen David De Gea, you've seen world-class goalkeepers. Yeah, well, he he was just the, the guy, wasn't he? When, when I was growing up, he was the guy that everyone thought was the best goalkeeper in the world. So big, so commanding. You, you'd, you'd always see him having a rant at the defenders. And I guess that's what you're talking about with, you know, the difficulties that sometimes his teammates might have experienced with him. You know, who, who are you to kind of criticise us? You've made mistakes, that kind of thing. Quite, an, But I suppose from, from creative friction comes success and and. I mean, just a, a personal um, point on the Schmeichels, because I covered Leicester's title win for, for the Daily Mail. Sorry, I keep harking back to my pr- previous employers. but um, And obviously, Casper was a big part of that. And, and he had the very similar traits to, to Peter in terms of, you know, always on the edge, um, you know, with his mentality. And I think likewise with his father could could rub people up the wrong way sometimes, even people that he was you know with, but clearly came from a, a passionate place, a very studious place. Um, and, and I think, you know, Fair play to to the Schmeichels for not having only you know one you know dominant goalkeeper but a, a second um, you know it, it kind of says something about their makeup I think that they they be able to do it in that way um, so yeah he was always the guy I remember that season ninety eight ninety nine it it probably on reflection wasn't his best wasn't it I'm trying to think back and I mean he obviously had you know a couple of really good saves in the final um, against Barcelona but. And Zamorano, you know, against Inter as well was one that stands out. But I think there were some mistakes. I think most people thought, okay, it's probably the right time and didn't anticipate him then going on to, you know, obviously we went to Sporting, but then Villa and Man City. Yeah, his announcement that he was leaving came quite early in the season. I can remember where I was. I was walking through a park in in London and I got a phone call to say Schmeichel's going to Sporting. And the feeling wasn't, oh no, the world's going to end. It was, as you say, um, he's probably dropped down a little bit from his incredible level that he was at. I remember him saying that uh, it, the demands he was putting on himself, he was finding it increasingly hard and he wanted to play somewhere sunny. So he, he moved to Lisbon, he did that. I mean, moving from Manchester United to um, to the Portuguese league is not a step which a lot of players uh, take. So he was true to his word, but then of course he came back to England as well. Andy, you were speaking just a bit earlier about have you sorted, you know, your friends are talking about have they sorted out tickets for Barcelona. There was the small matter of the FA Cup final as well. So had you sorted out tickets to get to London? Yeah, we had. It was just a very expensive time to be a Manchester United fan apart from all the other things, but but wonderful. And maybe you look through it with rose-tinted spectacles, but it seemed it was sunny every day. I actually lived in London in the treble season. I've only lived there for one year of my life and, and that was it. So... The, the FA Cup final was like a home game. It was great, but you suddenly found yourself becoming really, really popular with people wanting to use your your flat as a, as a guest house for, <laughs> for 62 people, which isn't obviously but it's a two-bedroom place in North London. So yeah, Barca, Barca. How are you getting to Barca? How are you getting to Barca? And Wembley. And 
the FA Cup final to look forward to. And, and I really look forward to it being against Newcastle United because they were and are a huge club and I respect their support because it's massive and they don't win anything ever. Now, they, <laughs> they had a good team. They had a really, really good team. And you're thinking, United have played 60 games. 61st game in the season is going to be the FA Cup final. On that big pitch at Wembley, it's going to be very, very difficult. But football was just taking over your life. You've got all these questions. I was single at the time. I'm probably glad I was single at the time because I think my, my partner would have gone absolutely mad because you're travelling here, there and everywhere. But what, what? it's just that never-to-be-beaten season. Strong choice of words there with never been beaten. This was Manchester United's fifth title in seven seasons and the first one they'd won at home in, well, I'm doing the math now, a long time. Uh, Andy, where does how does winning the title in your own home ground rank in comparison to some of the other United title wins? Great, but there's a but. And that is that when United beat Blackburn to win it in 93 I don't think that will ever be beaten for a celebration at Old Trafford because it had been so long it had been 26 years and I know the title had been won the day before but it still felt like it was immediate it was happening and by the end of the 90s I know that people were getting it's hard to phrase bored by the brilliance you sort of you're winning all the time and how people would love for that to return but I can remember coming out of Old Trafford in 2007 when they'd won the league and in feeling it's a bit flat because you're doing it for the 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th time and you just become spoiled by by the success. But that season, it was the first time that the United had won it at Old Trafford in 99 because United needed to win the game, because it was only 1-1 at half-time, because Tottenham were Arsenal's main rivals, because Cole's goal was brilliant and Beckham's goal were brilliant and Tottenham were an half-decent side and you had the FA Cup to look forward to and the European Cup final to look forward to. Everyone was buzzing. These, these were... We'd reached the sunlit uplands, but there was still a bit higher to go because stage one of stage three had been completed. But I, I, it, is, it is a scenario which is inconceivable at the moment. It really is. Laura, I want to throw this to you. United winning the title at Old Trafford, part one of the travel that you still don't know is going to happen. Where do you rank that in a, as a as a celebration in the city? Yeah, I think um, because I'm a bit younger than Andy, I don't the, the, the first two title wins I don't really remember a whole lot about. I, I started really getting into United ninety four ninety five seasons, so obviously disappointment, and then ninety five ninety six ninety six ninety seven was a bit underwhelming, I must say, because it was a, a bit of a flat season. It felt like in general, you know, Eric Cantona's last season. So ninety eight ninety nine had a bit more oomph about it. it you know, it, it it was that sort of building crescendo, and as you say, winning it in front of your own fans. It had that edge to it a little bit. I totally accept what Andy says, you know, another two titles after that. And then they were won pretty comfortably. Perhaps the, the gloss was taken off. But I would, I'm, I'm thinking back to 2006, seven when they obviously won it for the first time in three years. And there was a couple of moments away at Liverpool and away at Fulham when they felt like real galvanising moments. But there wasn't, again, there wasn't really that moment, at, you know, of, of celebration um, that they'd actually confirmed the title. Um, maybe, maybe the one away at Wigan, you know, the 17th overall title um, when you had, I think Chelsea also was, was you know, really close, wasn't it? 2008 when, uh, you know, it was you know, neck and neck and ultimately, you know, United won that day at the, the DW Stadium or whatever it was called at the time. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, I think maybe that's the only other one, but yeah, clearly the 99 one tops it for me. Before we sign off on this game, 
I want to talk a little bit about Manchester United playing Tottenham Hotspur. At the time, Alex Ferguson didn't really take them as a serious threat. There's obviously that very famous line, Laura. Could you give me a bit more detail about how Fergie viewed Spurs? Yeah, well, it's a famous um, extract in Roy Keane's book, isn't it, where he's talking about play, playing Spurs, facing them, and, and kind of in his own mind, he's, he's talking us through what he's thinking and saying, listen, we know what they're about. You know, we, 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 we've got their number. Um, please don't make it a long team talk going out here. Um, you know, sort of kind of, just wishing for it to be over quite quickly. No, you know we know what we're going to do. And Ferguson, he knows his players. He knows the opposition perfectly. Comes in, lads. It's Tottenham. Walks out again. And and Keane, you know, a hard man to please at the best of times. Describes it as brilliant. So, I think that was you know a, a key facet to, to Ferguson's management. Knowing his players, knowing what to say to them, whether they needed a you know a bollocking or whether they needed a, a detailed kind of tactical expression or whether they just needed to be told, lads, it's Tottenham. Spurs didn't beat Manchester United at Old Trafford for, well, until basically the post-Ferguson era. Why do you think Ferguson had Spurs' number, Andy? Manchester United was like a step up if you played for Spurs. If you played for Spurs, you had to deal with the pressure of playing for a big club. uh, And yet it was a club which didn't win many trophies. And United consistently went there and got their best players. It was never easy. I remember the Berbatov transfer dragging out throughout the summer of 2008. But United had the financial muscle uh, in, the, in the late 90s, because not at the start of the 90s, because at the start, in 1991, Tottenham had a bigger revenue than Manchester United. Not only did United get some of the best players, they took some of their best backroom staff. They took Edward Friedman, who was the man who'd revolutionised Tottenham's merchandise. And he came to Old Trafford, and he did the same at Old Trafford. And merchandise became very, very important to Manchester United. And Edward had been at, at Tottenham. Uh, I think he was a Tottenham fan, but he sort of went quiet on that when he came up to Manchester United. But he was brilliant at, at his job. And we've been, we've been much harder to do now because Spurs don't need the money. They're a much bigger... Uh, White Hart Lane holds 35,000. The new ground holds 61,000. Spurs reached the European Cup final last year. Okay, they still don't win any trophies, but they've finished above Manchester United in the league in in recent years. You, you could argue pretty convincingly that they've had a better team than Manchester United in recent years. Uh, but I, I think um, the natural order will 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 resume. But it's for United to go and try and get someone like Harry Kane, it would be extremely difficult, unless a player really wanted to move. Michael Carrick cost £18 million. It wasn't a lot of money at all. Berbatov was a transfer record, but United had their number, as you said. Um, Andy, Teddy Sheringham obviously plays a huge part in this 98-99 season for Manchester United in a little bit we'll get to. How is his sort of adjustment to life up north? Uh, it needed an adjustment because it took time for him to settle in. I think history will remember him as a, as a great Manchester United player. He scored huge goals. Um, he was a successful signing. All good. You know, history will remember him well. But when he first came up to Old Trafford, there were a few murmurings that he was a bit bit of a wide cockney. You know, he was spotted driving up and down Deansgate in in a car, which the colour of which became increasingly garish depending on which story. Um, you listen to him by the end of it he was driving in a rainbow coloured Lamborghini you know and I think there was just a mistrust of people from that London but Teddy was replacing Eric Cantona and Cantona was the king and Teddy took time to settle and a month into him being in Manchester I went on Soccer AM and I was asked 
how are United fans feeling about Sheringham? And I told the truth. I said he's taking time to settle in and it caused a massive stink because the whole team were watching it and they didn't agree and they felt that if I was a United fan, I should have been more supportive. And I framed it in a pretty positive way, but I couldn't pretend that he was he was Cantona. And it kicked off big style, big, 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 massive argument. I didn't speak to one or two people for 14 years. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Maybe I'll tell wow. this story. Wow. And, um, you know, in a bar in Manchester, there was a, we had a massive issue. And then uh, two weeks later, Teddy brought his autobiography out and we got invited to interview him. And I, as I just said, was living in London in the treble season. So I couldn't be there. It was in Manchester. So one of the young United we stand lads went and Teddy's like, where's Mitten? Where is he? Where's Mitten? <laughs> he wasn't happy. He really wasn't happy. Get him on the phone now. And my mate's like, who are you to call Andy? I mean, my mate could look after himself. So I'm <laughs> nearly got a situation here where you've got a fight between Steve Black and Teddy Sheringham, you know, over comments on TV. And T- Teddy wrote me a note saying, go easy on us now, eh, Andy? And that was, that was fair enough, sticking up for himself. I like the fact that the players stuck up for each other. Clearly, it was a successful format, which was which was working. And in, in later years, I got on fine with Teddy. I've, been, been, I've done trips with him and got on absolutely fine with him. But it's, I think history will remember him well. From Teddy's perspective, right, he wanted to win trophies. And Tottenham are banned from winning trophies. So, obviously... <laughs> go to Manchester United <laughs> and win the treble. It was all good. But there were a few bumps along the way. Well, that was one thing I was just thinking, actually, Andy, when I was watching this back. And the first season he was there, obviously the Arsenal fans, you know, win the double and, and they're gloating, aren't they? Oh, Teddy, Teddy goes to Man United yeah. and, he, and he wins fuck all. And then yeah. obviously United fans the next season have the perfect riposte with won the lot. So it was quite a nice sort of, you know, comeback, I suppose, is, is perhaps the right word. Yeah, and, and he deserved that, and he worked hard to fit in, and he, he, he added a dimension to that attack, which Sir Alex Ferguson saw, and it was worked. He was a top, top player. All good. Arguments forgotten about. No issues since. <laughs> Laurie, I've asked you this before when we've spoken about it, but could the next Spurs to Manchester United play be Harry Kane? If Harry Kane made it very clear that he wanted to um, join Manchester United, that would be a conversation that they would have. I think on the flip side the amount of money that it would take to get him out of Spurs and Daniel Levy, and we've spoken before about how difficult at negotiating he can be, that would be something that I don't think United would find um, you know, prudent um, given where else they'd like to strengthen the team and the fact that they've got Mason Greenwood coming through, the fact they've got Marcus Rashford and Anthony Martial starting to show something like he, 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 he we were hoping from him when he first joined. Um, so I don't know, it's, it's something that could be discussed clearly the noises that Harry Kane has made, he's not totally satisfied at Tottenham. He certainly wants to win stuff. And as Andy's pointed out, Tottenham haven't historically had lots of success. Whereas at United, even in this barren spell, you know, they've won FA Cup, they've won League Cup, they've won Europa League. So, and, and they would obviously pay more money than, than Tottenham, I would imagine, you know, for someone like Harry Kane. But the profile that he's got, the age that he's at, um, I don't know if that's something that they would pursue unless they were given huge encouragement to do so. It'd be down to his price. He's a world-class striker. He scored more goals in the last World Cup finals than any other player. But what is he, 27? His price is not going to go up now. It's going to come down pretty significantly each season. And if he pushes to move, then I think it'd happen. If United went in to try and sign him, to try and extract him like they did 
with some of the players we mentioned about. Levy's going to be on the 150 million, 150 million. And I just can't see any way, for the reasons that Laurie said, with United bringing the young players through, that they can reach an agreement there. Would I like Harry Kane next season as an option? Of course. But I just think the price, what Tottenham are going to demand for him, would be so off the scale that it probably wouldn't be worth it. I looked into his injury record. It's not that bad. It's not that bad. He misses a couple of months each season, but so do a lot of other strikers. And he's consistently scored an awful lot of goals in the Premier League. I really liked his touch uh, this week or last week when he decided to sponsor Leighton Orient. I think it's a really good thing to do that. It's not just, here's money to cancer research. Not that there's anything uh, wrong with that. It's, I've played at this club. This is from a community which I know. And this money is going to be used at a time when this football club really needs that money. So... He's clearly got a social conscience as well. Before recording, we asked some of our listeners to uh, send in some questions that they want answered by Laurie and Andy. So I'm going to put a couple of them to our experts. Gatti Hernop asks, uh, says that prior to lockdown matches, like we're in a good run of form. Um, is Do you think that the pause due to COVID-19 is going to see a reversion to the dark days of Burnley at the start of the year? Or do you think Manchester United just pick where they left off with Bruno popping balls over to Martial? And the happy days continuing. Laurie, what do you think? Yeah, obviously it's difficult to uh, figure out exactly how teams are going to come back from this. It's an unprecedented break, you know. For, for a lot of players, it's it's the longest break they've ever had in their careers. Um, certainly, without going on holiday or having kind of a, a mental switch off. So they're going to have to build up again. Um, there's going to be a little pre-season for, for all the teams. I would say that United are, are probably in a good position though when they come back. We'll have Marcus Rashford back. Uh, Paul Pogba will be back, and it will be really interesting to see what happens with the team. Whether Pogba comes straight back in, you know, him playing with Fernandes is something that I think a lot of people are interested to see how that goes. Um, but I think in general, the squad looks pretty healthy. The Ole Gunnar Solskjaer before the break was very happy with the morale of his team. Obviously, the the, the run that they'd had, people were buying into his methods and, um, you know, he felt very comfortable in sending them away and, and not seeing them, you know, every day as, as he would have done, you know, with uh, people coming in at Carrington. So I think they're in a good position. Clearly, if results don't start back how United fans would hope, you can see doubts creeping in again because, as we've discussed before, that that Burnley game was uh, really toxic and, and it, it felt like something was was on the edge of breaking. And the response to that was was fantastic, but it's probably not that far away if it if it reverts to that in, in, a, in a consistent you know basis. If it's lost, 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 or something like that. But equally, I, I do. I'm more positive and more glass half full. I think that they'll they'll come back with a with a bit of a bang and um, you know the players look fresh. Yeah, I'm I'm with you for most of that, Laurie. The break came at a pretty bad time for Manchester United because they were doing so well, and that Burnley game had started to fade away into the distance, and the team were keeping keeping clean sheets. But as you say, Pogba and Rashford back that will definitely excite fans. Every other team's had a break as well. But your point about confidence is vital. Why a year ago? Well, a bit longer than a year ago, did United go from a team which won all the time that which couldn't win? It's the the, the small margins, and I know that Ollie's really worked hard on this, and and he feels that his team and his squad are in a much better place than they were a year ago. Mentally, they shouldn't be fatigued like they were at the end of last season. I think there's a buzz about United fans, uh, and 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 among the players as well. So. But if you lose three matches and the mood just turns, totally turns. But I think United are in a, a better place now than they were at the start of this season. 
when Oli joined and at the start of last season. I think Fernandez has been a big difference. And Pogba's absence has not been ideal. But if you're Paul Pogba, you're going to be looking thinking, they can win without me. I need to prove a, I need to prove a point as well. Because I'm sitting on the sidelines watching United go to Chelsea and win twice. Beat Manchester City almost every time they play. And... They're not a bad side, Manchester United now. I think they're they're, they're getting better. There's still a considerable way to, to go, but get football back. Let us watch it, TV or not. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Callum Buchan asks, he wants to, well, Callum Buchan, I think he's been watching The Last Dance, like a lot of us, Last Dance documentary about Chicago Bulls and the time they three-peated or won three titles in a row. Manchester United have three-peated twice. One in uh, 1990-2001, another one from uh, 07 to 09. Laurie, I'm going to throw this one to you first. What do you think was the best United uh, three-peat? You'd have to say the treble team was the best, but I think probably the um, the years yeah between 2007 and 2009, the squad was the best and they were doing it consistently, not only winning the leagues but and against really strong teams, but also making it to the latter stages of Europe and... You know, they, they obviously won the Champions League against Chelsea in that final and then went back um, against Barcelona. And only, a, you know, probably one of the best Barcelona teams in history was, was able to stop United. And I, I think they, they, for me, probably would be the better team. Although, you know, you, were, you certainly won back against the, the 11 for the, for the treble season to beat any, uh, any team. And in your opinion, it's, it's, you know, the team led by Roy Keane versus the team led by Rio Ferdinand and Wayne Rooney. The intriguing one, which we'll never know the answer to. I can't see anyone with the desire to win that that Roy Keane had, even if technically the later teams were probably better because football's developed as well. There's there's less space on the pitch than there was. I, I've seen that watching some of the games from the treble. Football's definitely changed. So like for like, with them all at 27 years old, probably the later version, but then you've got Keane. Then you've got... It's, it, it, I mean, it's just... <laughs> We just don't ever know um, what's going to happen. But as, as Laurie said, um, that Barca team, who were probably the best team of the modern era, they twice stopped United. And I think it's really underrated and not give United don't get enough credit for reaching three European Cup finals in four years. That's an incredibly hard thing to do. 08, 09, um, 10 Bayern knocked United out and, and obviously 11. And... Not even the treble team could do that. They were falling at the hurdle at the semi-finals and the quarter-finals, but the later team did it. Uh, John Markowitz asks, uh, with the financial impact of COVID-19 and Man United's strong links to players such as Jack Grealish, Jaden Sancho, Jude Bingham, what do we think Manchester United's transfer budget is going to be like? Uh, Laurie, I'm going to keep throwing these questions to you first. I hope you no, don't that's mind. quite right. I've written something on this um, <laughs> before for the Athletic where it was in response to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer talking about um, the fact that they could potentially exploit the, the market um, but you know I think the, the essence of it is that United have got you know cash reserves they've got a strong robust commercial revenue stream so perhaps more than any other club you know accounting you know for Manchester City's um, you know billionaire owners you know the United are, are well stocked in this regard um, I, I would say I think they've probably got scope for you know, two hundred million pounds. You know, net is what they've perhaps been um, able to spend over sort of you know two or three years. So maybe maybe looking at that coming down. But I I could I'm one of these people that could actually see them spending a decent amount of money on a, a Jaden Sancho, for example, 
albeit you know you've got to add the caveats of the the, the optics of it and the fact that you know the, the market will just look different so so what will happen we, we don't know but I can't see Borussia Dortmund allowing him to leave for, for anything less than 100 million um, euros so you know but I think that's the kind of figure that United can look to to, to move with um, I don't think it would be you know a case of you know swaps or loans as it as it might be at other clubs. I've got a slightly different view here. Uh, I think that Dortmund are not in a particularly strong position because the players' contracts running down. Dortmund would want an auction situation, but where are the suitors coming from? Barcelona? Now nah, they've got financial issues. Madrid? They've already got players in that position. Sancho's already suggested that he wants to go to England. Do Chelsea buy 100 million players? No. Do Liverpool? Not really. Is he going to go back to Manchester City? So through a process of elimination, Manchester United could find themselves in a one-horse race, which is obviously the worst-case scenario um, for, for, for Borussia uh, Dortmund. I totally agree with Laurie that United will be in a decent position, although it should be pointed out that the Sancho money did come from the, the summer budget. That was said uh, when he was signed. But, yeah, I, I, and I also can see more swap deals throughout football but United you know, the word exploit was used which I know Ole Gunnar regretted um, and he just repeated Gary Neville's word in that interview but United will probably will be in a stronger position than, than almost any other club while still being in the football's financial fair play rules so and there's other factors you know if, if Villa go down Grealish's situation suddenly changes a lot uh, if Kane really, really wants to leave, not that I think that Kane's Manchester United's priority at the moment, then I think that there's room for a lot of different um, scenarios. And United have got a, an awful lot of players who they've been watched. And what they do, they have choice one, choice two, choice three in the positions that they're looking for. And I think those positions are going to be, it's going to be in the midfield, it's going to be up front. So back to what Laurie says, yep, Sancho will be the one who fits the profile, young, English, performed well at a top level. I want to talk about players possibly leaving Manchester United. I say I. I'm voicing Mark Oliver Scott's opinion on Twitter here. He wants to know, could Jesse Lingard depart Manchester United in the transfer window? And if he does, where do you think he'd go? Andy, I'm going to completely contradict what I said before. I'm going to throw this one to you first. Yes, he could. He's, his stock is actually pretty low among United fans. I've got to be honest, it is. He's not done enough. He's not scored enough goals. He's not made enough assists. He really didn't help himself with his social media a year ago. Most United fans just couldn't warm to him after that whatsoever, apart from my uh, 12-year-old brother who thought he was cool, and I, I didn't. Uh, I, I don't think anyone would um, would would be holding a protest march to keep Jesse Lingard if he was sold on by the club. He was close to going a year ago. Players have recovered in the past in terms of they've come back and performed against all odds. I think he might get to a point where he wants to play football more regularly and might decide he's better off away from Old Trafford. Ollie likes him, Ollie rates him, but he's earning a lot of money, Jesse. You've got to be contributing far more to the team than he's contributed. But you've got a chicken and egg situation here. If you come in and get a chance and don't take it. So I don't know what you think, Laurie. Yeah, I agree with you. I think I could see him going. I mean, when you employ Mino Rola as your agent, you're kind of saying, I, I want to move. Thank you very much. Um, and, and, and with that, 
it being said, I, I could see, you know, a European move actually. I know he's been linked with Roma, you know, Inter seem to be buying United players, um, you know, no, no, no fuss about it. So I could see something like that maybe happening. Um, I could also see a sort of lower level Premier League side, a Watford, a West Ham, something like that. Um, you know, and he's obviously got stuff to offer, Jesse Lingard. He, he did well in matches earlier this season against Man City and Spurs. Um, I just feel like he, he has disappointed too often where it feels like, is he fully applying himself to the role of being a Manchester United footballer so that's pre- where I guess you know they draw the line and if they can recoup um, you know as, you know 20 million for him um, I- I'm sure they, they would do that. Mark also has a secondary question which is just uh, any more details on this apparent fight between Sanchez and Greenwood? Yes, yeah, so we, we mentioned this um, before, I think, and or I've certainly written about it in uh, my background around Marcus uh, on Mason Greenwood. Um, when it, you know, basically last summer there was a pre-season training, and um, I think Greenwood went in for a tackle. Uh, Sanchez didn't like it, responded. You know, I'm not sure exactly how much it escalated, but certainly it was a reaction that you know other teammates were a bit taken aback by, and. I'm led to believe that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer took a pretty stern view and you know, that kind of, I think he'd already made his mind up on Sanchez. You know, Sanchez wanted out, it, you know, the kind of uh, mood that he was pr- producing wasn't um, conducive to a successful um, squad, you know, happy environment. So, you know, I think Solskjaer, that kind of just confirmed it for him though. And, and that was, that was basically it really, um, you know, so we'll see what happens with his loan at Inter clearly. Um, I, can't, I can't really see them extending it, but I don't think he's going to be welcome back into United or, or starting for them anytime soon. I don't, I don't know what you think, Andy. You, you might know more than me on that it's one. A, it's a good, it's a good job he doesn't earn much money, isn't it? And he's not going <laughs> to needs to be paid up. Um, uh, Oli wants personalities to play in the team who he thinks fit his very clear idea of uh, good people in the team, all pushing in the same direction. Go back to that Chicago's bull link. Bulls link, everyone pushing towards team success with a little bit of ego um, and if you don't fit into that then you've got no future at Manchester United uh, Sanchez did not fit into that and it was a case of finding someone who could come close to paying the largest portion of his wages and it's pretty sad because he hasn't really done much in, in Italy and I can remember him coming, I went to his signing when he joined Barcelona in 2011 and he had a choice United wanted him, City wanted him, Barca wanted him. And United were his second choice sign. And he went to Barca and he, he was an 8 out of 10 for three years. He was a good signing for them. And given that he's he's you know, he's not in the final chapter of his career, his performances have fallen off a cliff. And it's pretty sad. I'm sure he has his side of the story. And I've, I've been very patient with him. And maybe in, in games where he's tried too hard, but I just cannot see him having any future. Manchester United and and his personality will will not be missed and he'll probably look back and say I wasn't in the best frame of mind I wasn't at my best I probably was not the best person to be around and well that might all be true but if you're the manager you've got to have the best people around in your team well that's all from us this week if you want to read more from Laurie and Andy on The Athletic you can uh, subscribe and download the app if you have not already Remember, you can get a 90-day free trial by going to theathletic.com slash manunitedpod. Other than that, it's a goodbye from Laurie. Bye-bye. And goodbye from Andy. Cheers. And goodbye from myself. Uh, thank you for listening to another episode of Talk of Devils podcast. That's a Manchester United podcast brought to you by The Athletic. We'll be back next week. <laughs>